Right. Well, in order to be fair to the class uh, and keep things moving along, we're going to go ahead and uh, switch papers and have some grading here in class. Um, everybody swap papers with the person next to you. You'll notice that at the top it's got your name and graded by. So put your name in the spot that says graded by. Make sure everyone has the name of the person who took the test and the name of the person who graded the test on the top of the first page. Alright, part one, letter A. The system of philosophy based upon human reason, actions, and motives without concern of deity or supernatural phenomena. What's that one? Humanism. That's right, humanism. A is humanism. Letter B. The branch of philosophy that deals with knowing and the methods of obtaining knowledge. Epistemology. Very good, epistemology. Uh, this time, raise your hand if you know it. The belief that there is a God and that he is knowable and involved in the world. Elise? Theism. Yes. C is theism. I picked out the terms that are most important here at the beginning of our year for the quiz, and so we've been talking a lot about theism and humanism as two opposing religions, two opposing ways of viewing the world. So that's good to, to notice that, and epistemology is a big idea, as we'll be talking more about that today as well. Uh, letter D, freedom from all external constraints, independence consisting of self-determination. Autonomy. Yes, autonomy. D is autonomy. From the word autos, which means self, and namas, which means law. A law unto oneself. Alright, uh, letter E. The study of the nature and being of reality and its origin and structure. Yeah? Metaphysics. That's right, metaphysics. Now, I was asked a question before the class started on what's the difference between metaphysics and ontology. And those of you that have been studying the vocabulary, you notice that those two are, are quite similar. They use a lot of the same words in their definition. And so, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not an expert on this, I'm still learning along with you, but I think I'm pointing you in the right direction when I say that metaphysics focuses more on the physical universe. And ontology focuses more on the nature of beings of persons. Uh, what does it mean to be uh, human, or what is the, the nature of reality in the world of ideas? So, metaphysics focuses more on the physical side. I'm going to get the physics in there. Ontology has more to do with being. Uh, that is, uh, the being alive, being human, the world of thought and ideas. Uh, although... I'm sure that those words get exchanged and have a lot of overlap as well. So you'll find that in terminology there's going to be words that are near synonyms and that only sometimes are their meanings differentiated. Okay. Letter F. The view that truth is relative and not absolute. It varies from people to people and from time to time. Yep. Relativism? Yes, relativism is correct. And then G, the lack of belief in a God and or the belief that there is no God. The position held by a person or persons that lack belief in gods 
and or deny that gods exist. Atheism. Right, atheism. So we got theism on C, atheism on G. And then H is the study of seeking knowledge and wisdom in understanding the nature of the universe, man, ethics, art, love, purpose, etc. Right, philosophy. Once again, as we get later in our class today, you'll see that the word philosophy can be used in slightly different nuances. Here is a more general definition of philosophy, but sometimes Christians will distinguish philosophy from theology, and uh, you'll see that, well, the study of seeking knowledge and wisdom and understanding the nature of the universe, man, uh, ethics is what's right and wrong, love, purpose. Well, that sounds a lot like theology, doesn't it? Uh, that you know, we could go to the Bible to learn about God creating the universe, what it means to be human, what's right and wrong, how is love supposed to work. Um, so you can see that sometimes the word philosophy will refer to all of this, and then sometimes since Christians think of theology as dealing with many of these issues, sometimes Christians will just use philosophy to talk about the uh, natural revelation uh, concerning these things, and theology is more as the special revelation, and we'll talk more about that later in the lecture. Letter I, study of right and wrong, good and bad, moral judgment. Ethics. Wait, do I call any? Yeah, ethics. Uh, that's correct. And then J, the belief that there are many gods in existence in the universe. Many gods. Tell me your name again. Yeah. Isaac. Isaac. That's right, polytheism. Thank you, Isaac. All right, turn over to the back. Who was it that became king of the Franks in 768, was crowned emperor of the Holy Roman Empire in 800 AD, and who more closely united church power and state power and laid a foundation for a unified Christian culture in Western Europe? Who was that king? Yeah. That's right, Charlemagne. Um, what's Charlemagne's name literally mean? Well, you can see Charles in there. Uh, and then Maine, what do you think is uh, the meaning of that? Would it be king of No. Uh, notice that it's similar to the word magnify. Uh, when you're magnifying something, you're making it bigger, greater. So it's Charles the Great. Uh, Charlemagne is a way of saying Charles the Great. Uh, letter B, late 12th century and early 13th century monk who forbade his followers from receiving any monetary donations. Yes? Uh, St. Francis. Right, St. Francis. And where was Francis uh, famously living from? St. Francis of? No? Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, normally that's how you refer to which Francis you're talking about. Interesting that our current Pope took his name uh, from Francis. Uh, so that tells you something about the, the values of the current Pope as to which name they take for themselves. Letter C, 14th century Oxford professor who began to translate the Bible into English. Yeah. That's right. Uh, who was the other John that was important in the chapter? John Wycliffe and... Yes. Or Jan Hus, uh, if you want to use the Bohemian... Um, so, John and John, it's a good name for a reformer. 
And then letter D, the 4th century leader of the church in Milan who promoted a biblical form of Christianity while also valuing classical learning. Uh, for example, the art in Milan in the mosaics of the church uh, show real people instead of the symbols that came later in church history. Who are we talking about there? Yep. Ambrose? Right. Ambrose. <laughs> Uh, whenever I hear the name Ambrose, I think of how when St. Augustine became a Christian, he wrote to Ambrose to ask him what book of the Bible he should study first. And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. You know, you write into one of the, the leaders of the church and want to know, I, I just became a Christian, I want to study the Bible, what do I study first? And what book do you think Ambrose told Augustine to study first? Isaiah. You only got 66 books to choose from, it should be easy, right? Uh, you got a little less than one, a little more than one and a half, no, a little less than one and a half percent chance, right? Um, no, he told him Isaiah, which happens to be my favorite book, and I would be tempted to tell someone to study Isaiah first. However, Augustine found that studying Isaiah was rather difficult, and then he decided he wanted to study something easier to begin with. And so while Isaiah is a great book to study, it's not necessarily the first book you want to study. So Ambrose, he loved Isaiah, but unfortunately he didn't realize that you need a lot of Bible knowledge to be able to understand the greatness of that book. Uh, letter E. Study of this philosopher had been forbidden by Pope Urban IV. In the fresco, The School of Athens, uh, by Raphael, his fingers point down towards the earth. Who is that? Yeah. Aristotle. Yes, Aristotle. Very good. And then letter F. The 13th century theologian who highly valued the works of Aristotle and incorporated Aristotelian thought into Christianity. Who was that? Elise? Aquinas. Yes. And what was Aquinas' first name? Thomas. Yes. All right. Thomas. It's okay. You were giving the first answer, so you just assumed I was asking for you to follow up. Letter G. Buildings from the 12th to 15th centuries with rose windows, pointed arches, and Flying buttresses. Yeah. Um, the Gothic style of architecture. So I appreciate how in his book he does a great job of bringing in art and architecture to show the development of culture and the importance of ideas and influencing the arts. Art flows out of philosophy and theology. And so ideas have consequences. You can see the flow of history through the flow of its ideas in the art that is produced. Alright, so... How many are there in each section? Uh, on the first section, there is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So tell me how many out of 10 are right in section 1, and then 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 on the back. So the total number you can get right is 17. So put that grade up at the top. How many out of 17 are correct? And then hand them towards the middle. And then, Wesley, you can collect them all and bring them on up here.
Alright, the next thing that I would like you to do is to pull out episode 2 study guide. We're going to be discussing the questions on the back. Um, you can also pull out your answers to those questions if uh, you have that homework with you that was due last week, but we didn't have time to discuss in class last week. So there are three questions on the back of the episode 2 of the Middle Ages. Yes? Okay. Very good. Uh, when you turn in your homework, maybe uh, if you can, turn in a copy of it so that you still have it for yourself. You uh, have a scanner at home, you can make a copy of things. If not, I give you permission to make a copy here at the church if you uh, show up a little early and want to use the copier here. Alright, so... Last week we got into episode one and talked about the questions there. We had some good discussion going. Let's see if we can repeat that success this week. Question number one. Summarize the negative and positive aspects of church influence in the Middle Ages. All right, so this is a pretty open-ended question. A lot of ways that you can come at this. As you think back on the chapter, uh, as you think about what you wrote on this subject, what were some of the positive aspects of the church influencing the culture during the Middle Ages? Yeah. Uh, a lot of it in the arts of that day. Yeah, how so? Uh, better singing, for one. Um, <laughs> books being less of a uh, test and more of a uh, enticing story instead of, you know, just being, for uh, lack of a better word, plain. Um, okay. And uh, the architecture, which was greatly improved from the uh, previous years. So... A couple of the different styles of architecture that were pointed out as being part of the Renaissance and the re-understanding, uh, the, the gaining of some of that lost knowledge is the Romanesque style he talks about, which of course is influenced by Roman architecture, that's why it's got Romanesque, but it's not completely imitating Roman style, otherwise you just call it Roman architecture, but Romanesque means Roman-like, that it's, it's similar. It has elements of that style. And then, of course, what we had on the test, the architectural style with the rose windows and the pointed arches, which is different from the Roman arches. The Roman arch is curved, but a Gothic arch has the point on it. And so over time, architectural styles developed. And one of the amazing things about the architecture of the Middle Ages is the domes that were created. And so they learned from the ancients how to create domes, and that's not an easy thing to do if you're looking to design buildings, the, the, the bearing of the weight and the structure that's not going to collapse on the heads of people is pretty important. And so they were able to create domes that were even larger than what the Romans were able to build. Uh, I've been to uh, the, well, I've been to a number of the great domes that have been built in Europe, and the Pantheon is one of the famous domes in Rome. Well, where you had the uh, very large ancient building that is still there, but they surpassed it during the Middle Ages, and that shows that there was an increase in learning. Uh, and what the church did was the church had preserved this knowledge from the ancient world, the Greeks and the Romans, because the monks had been copying the text and keeping the, the text from the ancient world, even though there was a general decline in learning among the population, 
that once people gained an interest again in learning, after the time of Charlemagne and such developments, then they still had the text to go back and learn from, and then to even go beyond uh, what the ancients had known. So the church had a positive fact in that it preserved books, and that was very important for the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. All right, um, what were some of the negative effects of the church on society in the Middle Ages? Can you think of anything negative, Sam? Um, uh, in the video, didn't he bring up a lot about like, um, like the church becoming greedy? Yes. Um, and like the idea of, or, or like the, the Pope sort of adding to scripture with like Jesus like teaching and like um, saying that the, the rich are blessed. Um, and I don't remember who said it, but someone said that the um, church has become more like a stepmother. Yes, good. Um, the Church of Rome, which is supposed to be the mother of the churches, according to you know Roman theology. How convenient in Roman theology, Rome is the mother of the churches. Um, that it become more like a stepmother, in that it was greedy and corrupt and selfish and not concerned for the rights of the poor. So on one end, you kind of had this extreme of extreme wealth being centered in the church, and that is largely what led to the Reformation, as Martin Luther protested the indulgences, the sale of indulgences, which was used to build St. Peter's Basilica, which is an amazing building, but you know, just because it's amazing architecture doesn't mean the history that's behind that building is good. And then the other extreme of like a Francis of Assisi, who takes this vow of poverty that you can't own anything. And so the church kind of went to two extremes on the issue of how is the church supposed to be in the world? How is it to be in the world, not of the world? And so, uh, Francis Schaeffer, I think, rightly points out that as the church got further away from Scripture and got more into <laughs> church traditions and the authority of the church hierarchy, then you start to see some of the negative influence that is coming from that aspect of Christianity. But if you ask Francis Schaeffer, as far as the church was remaining biblical, then every effect that that had on the culture would have been a positive one. Yeah, but they also had more negative effect than just overwhelm. If you look at the crusades, you can see about how their control yeah. really affected the lives of a lot of people and killed a lot of people for their own personal agendas and their own personal gain. Yeah, now the crusades are a complicated subject. Uh, there is good and bad going on there. So that's uh, definitely interesting to think about where you say that the war that was brought about because of you know, certain Christian ideas coming from the church that we've got to retake the Holy Land, all that type of thing. Um, the union of state power and church power does have negative consequences in a number of ways. And there, there were certainly a lot of bad things that happened during the Crusades, as well as probably some good things. A complicated time in history as they all are. Good. I like how you brought that in. Uh, anything else that you want to bring in on question number one? Positive effects, negative effects of the church in the Middle Ages? Yeah. Um, I just remember the Gregorian chant. Uh -huh. How the music became kind of mystical and, and separate from the, the worship of the one who brought the Yeah, so... 
Schaefer brought out a contrast between the singing of hymns, a congregational worship, in the church at Milan, as Ambrose introduced the singing of hymns into his church. And, of course, uh, he pointed out that that was innovative at Ambrose's time. And I wonder, you know, what did they sing before that? But uh, then, as you moved out of that early Middle Ages and moved into the later Middle Ages, then you've got the church singing is not a congregational singing of hymns, but you've got monks who are singing chants. And also, very often, the singing was done in a language that was foreign to the people. That much of the singing was done in Latin, but common people didn't speak Latin after you got past the Roman Empire a certain, certain time period. And so you'd hear this beautiful music that sounded otherworldly and heavenly, but you didn't understand what it meant, and you weren't participating in it. And so a very different kind of Christianity with the Gregorian chants than what you have with Ambrose's congregational singing of hymns. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so there's a lot of other things you could bring in here. He brought in the positive aspect of the uh, church-run hospitals. That was something that you see there in the Middle Ages and is carried over into today. Uh, many of my children were born at St. Elizabeth Hospital. And so St. Elizabeth, you can get the idea, this is a Christian hospital, a Christian organization in its roots. And so the founding of hospitals was a positive aspect of Christian influence during the Middle Ages. And you could look at a number of other things as well. All right, but let's move on to number two. Here's a quote that we want to discuss to see what we agree with, what we don't agree with. And the quote is, to speak of distortions of belief in the Middle Ages is to pretend that the church should have stood still when the apostles died. But we have to adapt to new circumstances and ideas. The medieval church did just that. Uh, so is this comment uh, supportive or critical of Francis Schaeffer's chapter, um, The Middle Ages of the Church? What do you think? Is this comment overall supportive or overall critical? Let's uh, take a vote. Uh, raise your hand if you think it's supportive. Raise your hand if you think it's critical. Raise your hand if you don't know. <laughs> you can vote twice. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, you could argue it several ways, but the way I look at it is that this statement is overall critical, uh, and so Francis Schaeffer is asking us to, to kind of say what's, uh, how is, how is uh, that the, okay, let me, let me think what I'm trying to say here. Let me just uh, open it up for you guys. That's the point here, is to get you guys talking. So, interact with the statements. To speak of distortions of belief in the Middle Ages is to pretend that the church should have stood still when the apostles died. So he's saying that there are no distortions, it's just that the church adapted to new circumstances and ideas. Uh, that true, partly true, completely false. Uh, talk about talk about your ideas. Yeah. I think you said that So your, your uh, angle would be that when we're changing with new circumstances and new ideas, that we're becoming of the world rather than being uh, this kind of a worldly thing. Okay, yeah. Uh, what do you guys think of that? Sam? Um, I think that this question is like that the way it describes change, new circumstances, and ideas, it's like the 
for instance, we're not meeting in homes like we did 100 years ago. And we even adapted as much. A couple years ago, during COVID, we met online. Uh -huh. um, so I think there are ways we can adapt, but many, many ways to stay the same. Okay, so that would raise the question of how do you know when you can adapt and change and what needs to stay the same? What are your thoughts, Blake? Well, Paul talked about how when he's talking to the Jews versus the Gentiles, how he talks differently. Okay. I would say that's kind of necessarily the change that we need to make, is just the words we use. But the moment that you allow people to change God's words is the moment that God no longer becomes God, but becomes another one of the humanistic gods. Because the moment that people have the right to change God is the moment that God becomes another God created by people. Mm, very good. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so it's a matter of authority. Um, that you can change and adapt, but you can't change your source of authority. Very good, I like that. Good insight. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah. What does? The changing of authority, or that people are adapting too much to new ideas and not uh, sticking with the the core basis of truth. Yeah, truth doesn't change. Uh, I like what you point out that you can explain truth to different people in different ways, but you're still explaining the same truth. You can't change the truth. You might change how you explain it um, with new new terminology and new situations that you find yourself in. So yeah. Uh, Distortions of belief. Uh, there are things that are true and that you can't change them without distorting them. I think that's an important idea. Alright, number three. Apply the particulars universals discussion to modern circumstances. Okay? The particulars universals discussion. How do people repeat the same mistakes nowadays? Well, what mistakes is he talking about? to begin with. We can't know how people are repeating the same mistakes unless we know what mistakes people have made in the past when it comes to particulars and universals. So any, anybody have thoughts on this? Uh, I know my family kind of struggled with this question. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to understand exactly what he's getting at. Uh, what do you guys think? Do you understand this? Can you help us out? <laughs> Some others shared my confusion on this question as well. At least. Um, I think that particular is more like uh, physical things. Uh -huh. And believing in particulars and focusing on them throughout away um, the like, spiritual aspect. Okay. So when you only focus on the physical, then you abandon the spiritual and you don't really have a purpose, you can't really find a basis for ethics, and you don't really have a moral code. Good. Yeah, I think that's exactly what uh, Francis Schaefer was getting at with this question. Uh, you're, you're on the right track there. Anybody have any thoughts in response to what Elise said? Any, anything to add? Yep. The changing of belief from just being the words of the Bible, trusting as the truth, to uh, traditions of the church. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, very good. Very good. All right. So, with that discussion, we're ready to dive into a little bit closer look 
at the particular universal situation that Schaefer is talking about here. And in order to do that, I'm going to review, uh, with those of you that were in my philosophy class, but this will be new for those of you that were not in my philosophy adventure class last year, a lecture that Adam Johnson gave when he was our guest speaker here. And I, I, he, he gave me his PowerPoint for that lecture, and I still have it. And I thought, well, this is the perfect place to review that information. And so I'm going to fire up the PowerPoint for a discussion of Plato versus Aristotle regarding universals versus particulars that I think is really going to aid you in understanding what Francis Schaeffer was getting at in chapter 2 as far as setting up this, this uh, dichotomy of understanding absolute truth and the abstract versus understanding the scientific truth of the world that we live in. So let me put the PowerPoint on and you all can get some paper out and take notes. and exposed to ideas a number of times before they really start to sink in. And each time we come back around to it, we gain a little bit better understanding. And so I hope that this will be helpful in that regard. Now here you see the part of the painting that focuses on Plato and Aristotle. And what, what painting is this? You remember from the chapter, from what we just talked about in the quiz? What's this painting called? Yeah. The School of Athens. Excellent. Exactly. This is the School of Athens. And here's a tougher question. Does anybody remember where this painting is? It's a fresco. That means it's, it's on, a, an, on a building. It's not painted on canvas or anything like that. Uh, where, what building is this painting found in? It said so in the chapter. If I remember correctly, it's in St. Peter's, which is interesting, all right? Uh, so if you go to St. Peter's Basilica, you can go and look at Raphael's work on the School of Athens. Now, Athens, as you know, ancient Greek city-state that became the focal point of Greek philosophy because that is where Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle lived. Now, for those of you that studied the pre-Socratics, you know that the pre-Socratics didn't all live in Athens, that they were living in all different parts of Greece, but not only Greece, but Greater Greece, which was all of the colonies and other places where Greek culture was spreading in that time period. But Athens becomes very important because Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle form a basic foundation for Western philosophy at, after their time. In fact, as we'll see, one modern philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, said that all of Western philosophy can be thought of as a series of footnotes to Plato. Interesting. Uh, just how foundational Plato's philosophy is in Western civilization. So, you've got Plato here pointing up, and Aristotle with his hand down towards the earth. And that represents Plato focusing on the world of ideas, whereas Aristotle is focusing on the study of the physical world. And that's one way to, to think of the differences between the teacher and his student. Notice that Plato is older in this picture than Aristotle. Yeah? Um, you just look at it. It's actually in the back. Okay, thank you. 
the Vatican is in, in St. Peter's, isn't it? St. Peter's Basilica and the Vatican are, are the... In the Pope's library. Okay. Yeah, I think it's the same building. Uh, the Vatican might be like the larger complex, and St. Peter's is the Basilica in the Vatican. Thank you. I'm glad you found it. Um, all right, so let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about Plato. Now, I'm no expert on Plato. I haven't actually even read much Plato, uh, but I trust my sources here as far as what Plato's basic outlook in philosophy was. And so Plato, he was wanting to understand the world, and he started to think about the subject of beauty. Now, we note that things have beauty. You can see a flower has beauty. Uh, people have beauty. That there's all kinds of things in the world that have beauty. But Plato's thought was, what is beauty? Right? And so that's a different question. To have something versus being something. You know, I have money, but I am not money. And that is the difference between having and being. So, what is, what is beauty was uh, his, his question. And so Plato thought, what if everything that was beautiful was destroyed? And, you know, conceivably this could happen. You could go around destroying beautiful things until there's nothing beautiful left. Uh, if you destroyed everything in the universe that had beauty, would beauty still exist? Interesting thought, huh? That's what philosophy does. It asks good questions and gets you thinking. It's like a, a crowbar opening up your mind. Oh, I hadn't thought about that before. So if you destroy everything beautiful, does beauty itself still exist? And Plato said, yes, it does still exist. And then the question would be, well, then where does beauty exist? If it doesn't exist in anything, and yet it still exists, even when all of the things that it was existing in are destroyed, where does beauty exist? Beauty itself. Good question. And the question would come up, well, maybe it exists in our minds. Well, what about this? What if all the people died? Well, then does beauty still exist? Yes. I think you're right. But you're right because you have a certain worldview. That is, hopefully, the right worldview. Um, but Plato, he didn't necessarily grow up with our theology and our Bible and, and all of that type of thing. And so he's just thinking about these things from his own context, from his own perspective, from his own worldview. Does it exist in our minds? Is beauty in the eye of the beholder? Does it exist in us? Is that where beauty really is? Alright? Now, Plato concluded that beauty must exist beyond our minds. And I agree with that. I think that beauty does exist beyond our minds, that it's not just uh, in, in human thought, that if all humans were dead, beauty would still exist. He proposed, so Plato's trying to figure this out, if it's, if it's not in the things, and it's not in our minds, then where is it? So he said he proposed that beauty itself is, has existed as an objective, universal, absolute truth and standard. That, that beauty exists not just in subjective thinking, not in the object itself, but it exists somewhere else. And that somewhere is what we call the noumenal world, or the world of ideas. He argued that since the physical world is constantly changing, it can't provide the certain and stable foundation required for 
objective, universal truth. So, the particular versus the universal. You see where Francis Schaeffer was talking about the particular and the universal? If you destroy all the particular instances of beauty, you still have a universal beauty. Uh, the particular and the universal are different things. And Plato really emphasized the importance of the universal, objective truth of anything. Beauty, uh, truth, uh, any, any idea that you want to use, but beauty we're just using it as an example. Uh, beauty is, is uh, known in philosophy as the area of aesthetics. So philosophy will deal with lots of different branches, and one beauty is aesthetics, and that deals with what is beauty, what is beautiful, and what are the standards of beauty. And that's really a key, key, key question, a key word right there that you could write down. According to what standard? Right? According to what standard? Or by what standard? By what standard? It's shorter than according. <laughs> but you get the idea in both. And so, if somebody says, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Well, the question is, by what standard? So that's the area of ethics. Right? So in the area of ethics, you've got to have a standard by which you're judging particular actions and particular behavior. Somebody tells a lie. And you say, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't lie. And you say, by what standard is that wrong? All right? So in the area of beauty, you also have a standard. If somebody says, well, that girl is very beautiful, you say, well, not to me. I don't think she's very beautiful. Uh, you know, so different people can be judging beauty according to different standards. And so you have to say, well, what is the standard? Now, Plato, he held that there was a universal standard that was true in and of itself, and that it wasn't determined individually or subjectively. That's the difference between objective truth. It's universal. It's true in itself. It's not true just for me or just true for you. You might think that peanut butter and chocolate tastes wonderful. Another person might say peanut butter and chocolate tastes terrible. Well, what's the truth? Does it taste good or does it taste bad? And you've got a subjective difference in that experience or in that opinion. Uh, is there an objective truth uh, that uh, we can appeal to? So Plato, he concluded that objective, universal, absolute truth must exist and that it exists in a transcendent realm. That there is a world above this physical world. There is a world that is different from the specific instances. It's a world of ideas. It's a world of universal absolutes. It's the place where beauty exists in itself rather than existing in a flower. Okay? So he's got the physical world, and then he's got the transcendent world, which is objective and universal and absolute. Here's that quote from Alfred North Whitehead, which I mentioned earlier. The safest generalization, general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. Perhaps an overstatement, but uh, sometimes overstatements have a purpose. They, they drive home the point of how important something is. All right, so when you're coming into the Middle Ages, one of the names that cropped up in your reading this week was Augustine. And Augustine was influenced by his understanding of Plato. That before Augustine was a Christian, he was a philosopher who was influenced by a number of different schools of thought. And then after he became a Christian, he thought that, well, the Bible is my source of truth, but the philosophy that I find most helpful 
in thinking through the Bible and explaining the Bible is the philosophy of Plato. And so, Augustine, he was a very good writer. He was a very eloquent man. He was a very intelligent person. And so his writings had a, a huge impact on the church ever since his time. People look back on Augustine as being perhaps the most influential Christian theologian after you know, Paul, who wrote the New Testament, or a large part of the New Testament letters. So Augustine is huge in understanding Christian thought. And if you want to understand Augustine's relationship to Greek philosophy, well, he most liked, he, he was most in, in accord with the thinking of Plato. Now, that means that from the time of Augustine onwards, Platonic thought and Christian thought were kind of both swimming together, and Christianity took a lot of ideas from Plato, and over time, uh, ideas have consequences. Now, we've already talked about the School of Athens, so we'll move on quickly from Plato, the teacher, he was a generation older, and Aristotle was his student. Now, who was the teacher of Plato? No one knows? Yes. So, Socrates came first, then Plato, then Aristotle. And you can remember that order by the, the acronym SPA. Uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. S-P-A. So it's not SAP. Uh, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, or POS, uh, no, it's SPA. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle help you remember the order of those thinkers. So Aristotle came along, and he learned a lot from Plato, but he had some disagreements with his teacher, and he had some different perspectives, which happens often. And Aristotle, he was a philosopher in his own right, while taking a lot and being uh, very grateful to Plato, yet he, he argued that Plato was having the wrong emphasis, to, to think that the physical world was relatively unimportant compared to the transcendent world of ideals. And Plato, for all of his good thinking, that you, if you don't have the Bible, if you don't have God's word, you can go in a lot of bad directions with, with good thoughts. Uh, you can have a, a good thought that beauty exists outside of the physical thing and in some transcendent world, and then still make a lot of mistakes in how that applies and how you tease that out. So while we agree with Plato that there is objective universal truth, a lot of the things that Platonic philosophers did with that thinking went way beyond what Plato would have intended. And what you find with movements is that they, they tend to misunderstand and misuse a lot of what they were taught and they kind of devolve over time. Uh, but there's also improvement, and it's a very complicated world of ideas that we interact with. But anyway, to, to simplify things, Aristotle thought, well, we need to re-emphasize the importance of the physical world and not just be concerned about the world of ideas, like Plato is just a little too one-sided in his view. So, he agreed that universal objective truth exists, but he didn't agree on Plato's conception of where that exists, the, this transcendent realm. And where did Aristotle think that universal objective truth exists if it's not in a transcendent realm? Well, you have to read on that for yourself, because I don't know. <clears throat> Third, uh, Aristotle argued that the physical world, nature, 
was also important, and it was important to study it. And so Plato, he spent a lot of time just talking about concepts and ideas and the, the, the world of ideas, but Aristotle, he was a little bit more of a scientist. And so he would actually study nature, the particulars, and he would study fish, he would study plants, he'd study all kinds of things. And he said, you know, Plato was just too absorbed with the world of ideas, but we've got to learn from the natural world around us as well. And so say Aristotle's more of a scientist, and Plato's more of a philosopher uh, in how we sometimes think of those, those connotations. Alright, so if Augustine was mostly influenced by Plato, Aquinas really liked Aristotle. Now notice that there's almost a thousand years separating Augustine and Aquinas. So if you look at church history, uh, the history of the Middle Ages from this time up until this time, you got largely Platonic philosophy in a Christian worldview. But after Aquinas, he's huge. And he becomes kind of the, the new Augustine for everything after him. And so Aristotelian thought really starts to become the, the dominant way of thinking through Christianity after the time of Thomas Aquinas. And this has broad ramifications. There's a, a flow to history, and history flows according to ideas. And ideas have consequences. Now there's good consequences that come out of Aquinas' love for Aristotle. Just as there were good and bad consequences that came out of Augustine's love for Plato, so there's good and bad that comes out of Aquinas' love for Aristotle, and we'll get into that. Let's talk a little bit about Thomas Aquinas. Now, he was called Dumb Ox when he was young, uh, because he's kind of a quiet person, and he's a big person. And now, dumb doesn't mean stupid. Uh, dumb means he doesn't talk. Uh, that's the old meaning for the word dumb. But anyway, so the, the play on words there is he's not so dumb after all. He's, he's quite intelligent, and uh, a, a, a genius when it comes to theology and philosophy. I'm no Thomistic scholar. I'm not an expert on Thomas Aquinas. I'm an expert on the Bible. Um, I'd be interested in going back and reading more Thomas Aquinas and interacting with his ideas. But all that aside, as we said, because of Aristotle's influence, uh, now these aren't my slides, remember these are Adam Johnson's slides, and the great thing about using Adam Johnson's slides this week is that Adam's going to be here next week as our guest teacher, and he's going to be presenting on Francis Schaeffer, uh, who he's, he's an expert on Francis Schaeffer, uh, Adam's uh, got a PhD, he's an expert on a number of interesting subjects in this area that we're studying, so I'm glad to be able to, to bring him in and help us out. Um, now, Aquinas had a better balance than Augustine between the transcendent realm and the physical realm. So, he still believes in universal absolute truth, but he also believes in the importance of studying nature. And so, perhaps Francis Schaeffer is too hard on Thomas Aquinas himself, and it's really some of the followers of Thomas Aquinas who are to blame for some of the things that Francis Schaeffer is going to be pointing out as, as humanistic problems in the Renaissance. And that's going to be your reading this week. You're going to be reading chapter 3 in How Should We Then Live on the Renaissance. And the Renaissance is a humanistic flowering of this, this new learning that is not really focusing on the Bible and Christianity, but wants to focus more on uh, Greek philosophy apart from the Christian influence. So maybe it's not Thomas Aquinas who is to blame for the Enlightenment, uh, but maybe it's people who 
took some of the ideas of Thomas Aquinas, who was influenced by Aristotle, and so you see that you can't necessarily blame one person for what other person does with their ideas, right? You can't blame Jesus for any of the bad things that happened during the Crusades. Uh, people do things with people's ideas, and they're responsible for what they do with those ideas. But the ideas uh, of Thomas Aquinas himself were, were probably quite good, according to Adam, who's done a lot of study on this, and who I think has got a good perspective. So, combining what we know from the Bible, I don't have a Bible with me, I usually do, uh, from God's book, and what we can know from God's creation, the book of creation, uh, Thomas Aquinas talked about general revelation, what we learn from God through nature, and special revelation, what we learn from God through the Bible. Alright? So, this is important to understand general revelation and special revelation, because it's going to help us understand theology and philosophy, which are the most important foundational sciences, and how we know everything else, and how history and art and all of that, politics, flows out of our understanding of the world and God who has created it. So, general revelation is where God reveals truth indirectly through his creation. That God created the world, and there's certain things that God reveals uh, to human beings through the world that he has created. And by studying the particulars of the world, we can gain understanding of universal truth. Now, is this true? Does the Bible teach that God reveals truth through his creation? Uh, there's a key chapter in Paul's letters where Paul talks about this very thing. Anybody know what chapter I'm referring to? I guess? Yes. Romans chapter 1. So, if you are taking notes on general revelation, I put Romans chapter 1 up here with it, where in God's special revelation, he talks about his general revelation. Now, Romans 1 isn't the only place in the Bible where this idea, this concept of general revelation, not those words, but the idea that those words describe, Romans 1 isn't the only place you'll find that. You'll also find it in Psalm 19. Uh, so you could write down Psalm 19. And very often when I'm discussing general revelation, I will read from Romans chapter 1, I'll read from Psalm 19. Um, one of the verses that I really like that comes to mind when I'm thinking about gen general revelation, God revealing himself through his creation, is a verse in Hebrews where it says that, that every house has a builder, and the builder of all things is God. That you can learn something about someone by what they make, by what they create. If you come over to my house, I was involved with the, the building of my house, I was involved with the design of my house, I've been very much involved with all of the things that are in my house, so you can learn a lot about me by coming over to my house, right? So in the same way, here's God's house. Uh, you get out in the morning, you look at the sky, you, you see the, the sunset in the evening, you take a look at a, a spider building its web in your garden, and there's, that's God's house. He's the builder of all things. And you can learn something about God by looking at the house that he has built. And that's, that's that general revelation. And the scripture talks about that. Um, now, in general revelation, we can learn moral truth because the Bible tells us that what's right and wrong is written on the heart. That there's a code of ethics that God writes on the heart that even if you've never heard of the Ten Commandments, 
You know that it's wrong to steal. You know that it's wrong to kill. You know that it's wrong to dishonor your father and your mother. And so there's this, this moral truth that is revealed through God's creation. And guess what? We're part of God's creation. So the law written on the heart is part of this general revelation. And then you've got reason and logic. Reason and logic are tools that we have within us to be able to understand truth. And that we learn about God uh, through reason and logic. And then you've got uh, communication with the rules of language and the rules of grammar and how to properly interpret communication. You know, how to learn and understand through reason, evidence, and our senses. And we can get information about God and what he's like from general revelation. But special revelation... Now, special doesn't mean that it's better than something else. Um, sometimes we use the word special in a new way. But these are old terms, and they go back to more of the old way that words were used. Um, a species is a particular kind of an animal. And we could say it's special in that it's different from other kinds of animals. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's better, it just means that it's different. So special revelation is the opposite of general revelation in the sense that it doesn't go to everyone, but it just goes to those who have the Bible. General revelation goes out generally to all people. But special revelation is only given to those people who hear the word of God whether it's spoken through a prophet, like it was in the Old Testament, whether it's spoken through an apostle in the New Testament, or the word of Jesus Christ himself, or it's written down for us in the Holy Bible, it's special in the sense that it, doesn't, it hasn't existed in all times and all places, like the sky has, uh, but this is the direct communication of God, and so it just comes in particular times and places. And we are blessed to live in a, a time and place where we have the word of God spoken to us, special revelation. Moses, burning bush, prophets, Jesus, this is what I mentioned, and scripture is the, the main repository of special revelation that we study. And so Christians, when they are differentiating between philosophy and theology, they will often put philosophy in this category of general revelation, because you know philosophy deals with ethics and reason and logic and communication and understanding and the scientific method and kind of this, this general idea about God that we can get just from looking at creation. That's kind of more the philosophy. Whereas we use the term theology as the study of special revelation where we're still learning about God, we still use logic, and we still interpret uh, the, the scriptural text according to the rules of language, and we learn a lot about moral truth. But this is the study of special revelation whereas philosophy is the study of general revelation. Now again, these terms are, are differentiated in this way in Christian circles because of our understanding of general revelation and special revelation. But if you just take the term philosophy in and of itself, it doesn't have anything necessarily to do with general revelation versus special revelation. Philosophy, according to the definition on your handout, is just the study of seeking knowledge and wisdom in understanding the nature of the universe, man, ethics, art, love, and purpose. And according to that definition, it would be studying it through special revelation or general revelation. And the Bible talks a lot about wisdom and pursuing wisdom and loving wisdom, and that's the basic meaning of philosophy, is sophos is wisdom, philos is the love of. And so clinging to wisdom, pursuing wisdom, 
is at the heart of that idea. And so these words can be used in different ways, uh, and yet I want you to understand the different ways in which they're used and in our context here. All right? Now, let's get Aquinas' quote there. To review, we got Plato. He lived 400 years before Christ. Augustine is 400 years after Christ. It's a big time sphere, but that's what books do for us. Books allow us to be influenced by the ideas of people who lived hundreds of years before us. And so Aristotle, living shortly after Plato, being his student, uh, then became the, the primary influencer of Aquinas. And this gives you an understanding of early medieval church thinking versus later medieval church history. And you want to understand that because you want to understand where the scientific revolution came from. That this Aristotelian scholasticism that goes, traces its roots back to Thomas Aquinas, that it led to the Renaissance, which led to the scientific revolution, which led to the Enlightenment. There's good things in the Renaissance, as you'll find out in your reading this week, and how should we then live. There's wonderful things in the scientific revolution. However, the Enlightenment is somewhat of a misnomer. And uh, we as Christians, we like to refer to it as the endarkenment, uh, because this is where the uh, Aristotelian ideas are divorced from any idea of Christianity and special revelation, and instead you have a humanistic development an atheistic, humanistic development of Aristotelian philosophy in the Enlightenment, which has led to a lot of problems in our world. Now, when you go back to the scientific revolution in the 1500s to 1700s, you've got guys like Johannes Kepler. Notice he's living between that time period, right? And Ke Kepler was an astronomer. And Kepler said of his astronomy, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard not to the book of nature, okay, the book of nature, natural revelation, general revelation, it benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, that would be humanism, the glory of our minds, right, that's uh, the enlightenment uh, emphasis that comes later, but rather, above all else, the glory of God. So you see how Aristotle ideas influencing Aquinas, and Aquinas being a Christian theologian, and he was able to, to take those and form a proper balance between believing in objective, universal truth, and at the same time, valuing the study of nature, God's creation, which led to a flowering of science. And so, I would propose to the scientist that it is actually the Christian worldview, making use, yes, of Greek philosophy, that has caused all of the wonderful advances in science that we have, and that the humanist emphasis in science is actually going to lead to the downfall of our scientific institutions, and really going to slow the progress of our increase in scientific knowledge. The world hasn't yet seen what a truly biblical worldview is able to produce in the areas of art and science. Uh, we've seen a picture, we've seen a glimpse of what is possible through many of the achievements, many of the wonders of the last few centuries. Uh, but a lot of that has been held back and tainted by false ideas, philosophy that is not true, and if we could continue to pursue right thinking, it's going to lead to good consequences in all areas. But as to, insofar as we believe things that are false and not true, that's going to have 
bad consequences, and here we're focusing on its influence on science. So, Adam uh, rightly points out that the pendulum uh, through history swung too far. The flow of history moved from too little emphasis on nature to too much emphasis on nature. And what we want to keep is this right balance between general revelation, pursuing the knowledge of the particulars, while also understanding the importance of the knowledge of the universals. As you came in this morning, you went by the church sign out here, and on the church sign we have a Bible verse that says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We walk on the way, but we are not the way. We know the truth, but we are not the truth. We have life, but we are not the life. And so what Plato needed to understand is that life exists in the person of God. Not in some impersonal, transcendent realm, but that truth, beauty, all of these things, life, they have an existence apart from the particulars that God has created in the God who has created them. And once you understand Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you've got a foundation for a worldview that is, that is true and it works. Without this foundation of in the beginning God, then you don't know how the universals relate to the particulars and you end up with all kinds of foolish philosophies that lead people into ruin and destruction. And Plato didn't understand. He understood a transcendent realm, but he didn't understand that that transcendent realm was the personal God in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll see that as we continue uh, throughout the year. So hopefully this is helpful in understanding the, the grace, the higher that was there at the end of the chapter, and nature, the lower, the created. Uh, I don't really like to use the terms grace and nature to contrast this. I like the terminology that we've been using here of general revelation versus special revelation or the universal truth versus the particular instantiation of those things. But they're all different ways of talking about this same difference. And by looking at Plato and Aristotle and their influence, I think you've got a little more exposure, a little better understanding of the foundations here that are going to be uh, developed throughout the rest of the book, throughout the rest of our year together. All right, so you are dismissed. I'll send out the assignment. Have a great week. Thank you.